a Fulbright Fellowship in Barcelona, fellowships at the University of Sydney, and the Broker Institute in Geneva. He's published over 250 articles and book chapters. Um, so I just wanted to say a quick word about um, my experience reading um, this book. Um, I'm really honored to get to introduce Dr. Epstein, and I actually feel like I know him well because of reading this book. Um, I was given it as a gift by a senior physician and mentor, and immediately it helped me find a new balance in my busy life as a clinician, teacher, mother, and wife. Um, physicians practice at the busy intersection of science, technology, organizations, social determinants, emotions, and personal relationships. And to practice well, the doctor has to integrate these often conflicting elements and remain focused on the patient um, and his or her needs. It's no wonder that burnout or feeling emotionally detached from your work is skyrocketing, as the complexity in our system and competing pressures on doctors increase daily. The doctor's mind and heart are the most precious resources we have to provide compassionate and high-quality medicine, and yet we as doctors are rarely taught how to take care of them and to give ourselves the time and permission to do so. So Dr. Epstein's book, gives that self-care a name and a structure. And it personally helped me understand many of those colliding forces in my own mind and create that space and calm that I needed to help help me cherish taking care, taking care of patients again. So thank you so much, and I'm really glad you're here. So that when many years later, a friend's brother taught me how to do Zen meditation, 
that sense of calm and peace and presence was a familiar one, that was a rediscovery. Uh, now, this was the era in which everyone read Hermann Hesse, and as did I. And all of Hermann Hesse's novels had one character who goes off into the world and has all sorts of adventures, and one character who becomes a monk. <laughs> and I wanted to do, and then they meet up later, you know, in the summer. <laughs> And he also wrote Siddhartha, which is kind of an allegory about the life of the Buddha. Um, so I wanted to do both of those. I wanted to be the traveler and also the monk. And, and so that, in a way, in a capsule is, is a history of my life. I've kind of alternated between being the traveler and the monk. Uh, the other influences that I had, uh, in my freshman year at college, I took a course called Emptiness, where my parents saw like a college friend. And also John Cage, the composer, I started out life as a musician. He was a major influence. He wrote a piece called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which came to be called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which was in three movements, all of which were silent. <laughs> but not quite silent, because the audience always makes noise and sounds. And you hear yourself breathing, you hear your heart beating, you hear the playing of overhead. So, um, and uh, and my interest in bringing my work, my life work, in mindfulness, which really was a meditation practice uh, for many years, and the synthesis of that with my medical practice uh, happened at a point in the 90s when I was asked to try to define what professional confidence was. And, and I quickly realized it didn't have to do with filling out little black dots on pieces of paper. No, we got computers, but those days we didn't. And, um, uh, or passenger boards, or um, getting good marks. Uh, so it had to do with something deeper, something that had to do with the marrow of who we are. Um, so here are just several evocations of mindfulness. This is from Ronald May. Uh, the quote sometimes has been misattributed to Viktor Frankl. Um, uh, human freedom involves our capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And for me, mindfulness is that pause. It's the ability when facing suffering, conflict, despair, um, errors, grief, these things that, we, that, we that accompany us all the time as clinicians, the ability to find that space amidst strong emotions, to then be able to choose a response that's most important with our values, uh, towards which we wish to throw our weight. Um, uh, another evocation comes um, from much earlier, from a poem by Rumi, the Persian mystic poet uh, from the 13th century, uh, which goes something like this. There are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as from the new sciences. With such intelligence, you rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. It sounds like medical school, doesn't it? <laughs> You stroll with this intelligence, and in and out of fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets. There is another kind of tablet, 
one already completed and preserved inside you. A spring overflowing its spring box of freshness in the center of the chest. This other intelligence doesn't turn yellow or stagnant. It's fluid, and it doesn't move from outside to inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. The second knowing is a fountainhead from within. Yet another image. A few years ago, I was hiking in Peru, and this is a wall. You see lots of these. Uh, they were built before the Spaniards, quite a bit before the Spaniards. And whereas the earthquakes in that region toppled a lot of the churches and structures the Spanish had built with bricks and mortar, these somehow seem to have endured. And I learned that the rocks actually, though they look like the surfaces are flat, in fact, in fact, are concave and convex. So when earthquakes happen, the rocks, the stones move with respect to one another and then settle down into their original orientation. And this idea of, of suppleness, of flexibility, of being able to um, ride waves without capsizing, these are all metaphors, um, for me defines the process of becoming mindful. Here's a more mundane schematic, but I think this is useful for those who are trying to justify why being mindful might be useful. We know that mindfulness enhances well-being in clinicians as well as others. Um, we know that mindful, uh, practicing mindfully is associated with better quality of care, fewer errors, um, more patient-centered uh, behaviors, and also with, um, with qualities of care. Uh, empathy, compassion, uh, and responsiveness. I'm not going to talk a lot about research. If you want references, there are a lot of them in the book. Um, but this is just a summary of what mindfulness has been associated with. Um, so, you know, like I said, I had a product, if you will, that would reduce stress and burnout, improve attentiveness, improve positive emotion, result in cognitive debiasing and better decision-making, greater comfort with uncertainty, better safety empathy, uh, ratings of communication, relationship, greater sense of community. Actually, there's been some research now on implicit bias showing that people are more mindful, exhibit less implicit bias because of a greater sense of openness and acceptance. So the first question I would ask you if you are interested in um, becoming more mindful is there are questions about intention. So you all made a decision to spend part of your uh, Wednesday afternoon here. So what is it in your life that has kind of led you to be here? But I'd just like you to, to think about another question. Imagine that um, you, a miracle happened. You went to bed and you woke up in the morning and you had a day when you felt you were truly flourishing. You were practicing at the top of your game. I mean, the work we do is difficult. It's always been difficult and always will be difficult. But imagine a day when you feel that you are approaching that work with a sense of a plum, a sense of purpose. Um, and even if things don't go you know, the way you always wish that they would, you kind of have, have a sense that you're flourishing in the job that you're doing. What would that look like? So mindfulness is not a state, it's a vector. Okay? Mindfulness is heading towards something. It's a process of bringing oneself back from all of the distractions that we can very easily make, like that. Um, and it's remarkable 
just that siren derailed my thinking, mm -hmm. even though I knew it had nothing to do with me. Okay? Um, I don't live here. You know, I don't know all that many people. My mother is in Long Island, pretty far away. Um, um, you know, someone's probably in trouble. But so, how we deal? How we bring our mind back to the present uh, is really what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is about attention. Uh, and where you choose to place your attention. So it's just so that, you know, with the Roma Mako, we find this space between stimulus and response and choose our response. On a more fine-grained level, we actually do have some control about how we parse our attention. So you're in the emergency room, someone's talking in one ear, someone else is talking in the other ear. You hear a beep uh, somewhere across, and there's a patient screaming, uh, it's really hot, and it's kind of smelly. And there are all these stimuli, and you need to have the capacity to make conscious or unconscious choices amongst the stimuli. The problem is, is that it often goes awry, uh, and often re results in things that might be avoidable errors. I had a patient who had, had had a previous rotator cuff injury and came into the office with shoulder pain a few years later. I happened to be on vacation. Uh, he came in. Um, and was complaining also feeling a little under the weather, a little feverish, and, and said he kind of felt a little swollen around his shoulder. And diagnosis of the chart was recurrent rotator cuff injury. Uh, so another clinician, he didn't feel better after uh, a week or so, um, and confirmed that diagnosis sent the patient for physical therapy. Saw so a third clinician. Uh, who noticed that he kind of looked a little pale and weak and, um, and thought despite this rotator cuff, she would send off a CBC to see if things were okay. And it was only the emergency room doc who he saw after a CBC came back showing he was pancytopenic, who noticed the 10 centimeter mass yeah. in his axilla. So expectation conditions observation. Or as someone put it, there's no such thing as immaculate perception. <laughs> Curiosity is um, the third element. So we've got intention, attention, and curiosity. So Faith Fitzgerald wrote a great article called Curiosity about 20 years ago. Describes a story where a resident presents a patient on grounds, and resident said on physical exam, patient had a um, uh, a scar in the groin, um, attending several, where did the scar come from? Well, the patient got bit, was bitten by a snake there. And the attending then asked, well, how did that happen? And the resident said, I don't know. Now, how many of you have taken care of a patient who's had a snake bite to the groin? <laughs> I mean, the imagination runs right. <laughs> So where is your mind? 
after all. I mean, and when you finally try, try to deconstruct those concepts, they don't actually make all that much sense that, that they'd be different. So, but they're, they're categories that are often useful for separating things, you know, something you send to a psychiatrist and something that you, someone that you send to a surgeon. So they can be useful. But, um, so Zen story. Uh, two monks were watching a flag flapping in the wind. One said to the other, the flag is moving. This being a Zen story, three hours pass. <laughs> the other replies, the wind is moving. Wayne, their teacher, overheard this, and he said, not the flag, not the wind. Mind is moving. And it's the ability to, to hold both of those visions of the same phenomenon, okay? Flag is moving, wind is moving. Patient is non-compliant, patient is trying the best they can. Both can be true, or neither can be true. You all remember uh, Superstorm Sandy? So, um, what images come up from this photograph? Calm? Tranquility? <laughs> okay, so turbulence. If you, were, if you were investing in real estate, would you want to invest in this Uncertain, 
when it's hard to find meaning. In medicine, these are times when patients face serious illness and loss of function, when they and their loved ones are frightened, when there are unexpected mishaps. <clears throat> Presence is a gift of dignity and respect when patients need it the most. Sometimes a simple gesture and a few well-placed words can signal presence. Uh, one day on grounds on hospital, uh, in hospital, we walked into a room, and Laura, the nurse practitioner I work with on our palliative care team, said three words to the patient. What beautiful flowers. <clears throat> the patient looked at the flowers and smiled. The previous day, the patient had had a biopsy that would let her know whether her cancer had progressed. She was still awaiting the results. We all feared that the news wouldn't be good. Laura's comment communicated that even in dire circumstances, it's possible to see beauty and honor those who loved and cared for the patient, that she wasn't alone. More often, though, presence is communicated non-verbally, a softness of gaze, a quality of touch, a handshake that is felt genuine rather than perfunctory, a gentle examination of a patient's tender abdomen. How can presence happen, though, when office visits are constrained to a mere 15 to 20 minutes or even shorter? Elapsed time may be out of the doctor's control to some degree, but perceived time can always be created. I teach physicians to sit down while talking to a patient rather than standing. And in one study um, of surgeons, patients considered that the surgeons had spent two or three times the amount of time just by virtue of having sat. Patient satisfaction is more tied to perceived time than to elapsed time in the visit. Musicians know about presence and its absence. When you're caught up in your thoughts and just going through the motions, your professional colleagues will say that you're just phoning again. And they'll say, I played a good concert, wish I had been there. It's the same in medicine when you're being present. Patients know, and you know. Just another painting, probably familiar to many of you. Uh, there are many of these. Uh, and so presence, uh, Jack Coulahan wrote a beautiful essay called uh, Tenderness and Steadiness. And I see those qualities as really capturing this quality of presence, that there's this kindness, compassion, tenderness, but also this not falling off your surfboard kind of steadiness. Now, there's a lot of talk about empathy, and I teach clinicians to try to express and experience empathy. And um, But empathy has two sides. Uh, there's the exquisite side of being present, attuned, well-boundary, engaged, but also um, Empathy, uh, others' suffering can actually cause us distress. Um, and Eric Larson uh, described it as emotional labor, a willingness to subject one's mind to the patient's world. So the ability to remain curious and attentive and have a beginner's mind and be present when things aren't going so well is really the skill. So last night I spent quite a while with a patient and her family um, who has intractable migraines with vertigo and nausea that we've been unable to control for 10 weeks. And 
specialist after specialist. And so here I am with her and her family with a sense of utter failure. It's a woman I've known and taken care of for 20 years. And so remaining present and attentive and curious in those circumstances is challenging. This is one barrier to presence. Uh, this is a, a drawing by a child. Uh, Betsy Toll wrote the article on Java, but um, her colleagues, it was her colleague's patient. And you can see, uh, I mean, children are optimistic. Uh, she's sitting on the examining table. Um, that's the artist uh, sitting there, um, smiling. And her parent, her mother's reading a magazine and smiling. And her two sibs are there. But look where the doctor is. Now, our exam rooms in our office are not situated that way. I can look at the computer screen and look at the patient at the same time. But still, it does send a message that of what Abraham Verghese calls the patient as icon, that, that the real patient is on the screen, and the person in the room is just adornment. I'm going to kind of go backwards a little bit, because um, 10 years ago, we um, did a study with primary care physicians where we try to teach them to be more intentional, attentive, curious, have a beginner's mind, be more present, through teaching doctors to do meditation and to engage in various exercises that involve deep listening. And by meditation, I mean meditation is broad. One of the exercises we do is have people wander around the environment and look for everything red that they see. And it's really quite interesting to do it sometimes. You, you recognize that your visual apparatus is different, your perceptions change. Um, and also, your thinking about, about what you're doing changes. You get bored, you get annoyed, you get repetitive, just with a simple exercise on it. So I considered that a contemplative exercise. So just with this, we met with physicians for two and a half hours a week for eight weeks, and then monthly for a year, and found that there were really some pretty profound changes. Actually, we were kind of surprised. Um, that they're, not only do they feel uh, more centered and more mindful and less emotionally distressed, uh, less burned out, but they also changed their practice style. They became more patient-centered. They became more emotionally attuned, more empathic. We also found changes in physician personality. Uh, we found that they were their scores on neuroticism went down, their scores on attentiveness and then um, we asked them a year later what happened. And, and I think these changes are not unique to the work that we do. It's just that we were fortunate to capture them. Um, the first had to do with building community. Now, we can't do this work of being humane physicians alone. It's very difficult. One has to have a sense of community. And this is your community. This is, you know, you have a sense of community. This is a gift. And, and Rita and others have helped create communities around things like that. Um, being more present, so before and after, it's a much longer quote, but the, the physician was talking about how previously she tried to be so empathic that it basically burned her out. Uh, she would spend extra time, uh, but felt that it was sucking her dry. But, and this is the after quote. It's not that I don't empathize with them anymore, but I feel okay to just listen and be present. And I think that in some ways helps them more. Um, when you engage in activities in which you observe the activity of your own mind, it 
induces a kind of radical honesty that's sometimes distressing. Um, the author Annie Lamott once said, um, my mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. I don't like to go there alone. Um, and um, so when you have established a practice of understanding those spaces and the choices that you make, um, it changes your orientation to your work. It opens you up to be more ready, uh, to have a more intimate interaction with people. Uh, it becomes easy. Originally, I was doing it for the stress reduction, then as I went on, I'm learning how to communicate with myself as much as anyone else. I gave myself permission to start thinking. So how often we go through the day without really examining what we're doing. So when people think about mindfulness, usually they think about people who look like they're kind of blissed out and levitating a little bit. And this is the, this is the Milford Sound in New Zealand. This is you know, you know, sitting on a cushion looking out at a scene like this. You know, this is, um, but this is really the mindfulness that matters, right? You know, you're in the emergency room, you've got to intubate this person, you're running a code. Um, so actually in residency I made a practice of trying to run the calmest codes imaginable. Um, that every time a stressful event happened, I would think about this little space and then and so you can train yourself to do things like that. For example, um, I often suggest that as a practice, this is a very simple practice, uh, there are doorknobs all over the place, and we usually touch them before going into rooms to see patients, so, or door handles. So what do you do when you touch the door handle? This is an opportunity uh, to mentally take whatever's happened before and set it aside and put it here on the shelf. It's within reach. You're not blocking out thoughts. But you're making an intentional choice to just put it here so that you can be present for the next patient. And sometimes taking your breath helps you do that. If you do this, no one will know. <laughs> no one has to know. But if you see 100 patients a week and do this every week, that's 4,000 times a year. And if you do it for 10 years, that's 40,000 times. And anything that you do 40,000 times, you can get pretty good at. So mindfulness is a practice. Um, other little exercises. Um, uh, have any of you done something called a body scan where you pay attention to different parts of your body? And, well, you can do a very quick one, just, just asking yourself, where are my feet? And I find that's just very useful. First of all, your feet are kind of pretty far from your brain. Um, and, uh, and second, it's just a way of saying, well, how can I be in the present? You know, I'm worried about what this is going to happen in the future and just what I did. And Way of, um, so there are various exercises that can help you be present in the workplace. I think those are perhaps more important than finding a cushion and sitting on it for long periods of time. Although I find value So how do we become bring this sense of presence, attentiveness, curiosity, intention to design? Um, I think much of the time we listen not with the intention or we uh, intention to understand, but rather with, you know, we're kind of composing our responses. So the exercises that I'm going to talk about and one that we're going to do in a few minutes um, has to do with uncoupling that reaction to respond from the imperative to listen. 
Both are important. But as just like a pianist has to practice C major scales over and over again to get the fluidity uh, in order to play a Chopin into, um, you have to practice and in dialogue uh, some things that often may feel a bit unnatural. So we use stories. Uh, we have people write stories. And, uh, and, um, but part of the telling of the story involves not only introspection on the part of the storyteller, but also the quality of listening that the listener brings to it. So this is like one set of instructions we would give to a listener. That is, you would set your attention, intention to spend more time listening. We know that doctors talk about two-thirds of the time and visit the patient's one-third. Imagine if that were good. Uh, be curious, ask questions to deepen your understanding, but to recognize this almost insatiable urge to tell your own story. Uh, when I was, uh, I've had eight kidney stones. These are not very pleasant events. And early in my career, I used to tell patients you know, who had kidney stones, um, you know, gee, I had kidney stones too. And I usually kind of got a response like this. You know, they were like totally uninterested. <laughs> they were using their kidneys. It took like years for this to get through my skull. Um, so um, don't talk about yourself. Don't give advice. Don't make interpretations. Don't judge. This is an exercise. We obviously have to give advice to interpret and judge things. But just as an exercise, you know, just imagine what it would be like to go through a day, an entire day, without judging anything. Just observe it. You can do this on a meditation retreat. You can't do it by an emergency. Um, but just as, 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 as an exercise in imagination. Um, so, what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're willing, uh, is prepare. And this is going to be an exercise about, about gratitude, about understanding gratitude. Um, I'll explain a little bit why, why this, because we know that gratitude is not only helpful socially, it's not a, a pro-social emotion, but it also tends to make people, if you feel grateful and aware of things that you're grateful for, it tends to give you more energy, it tends to improve mood, it tends to uh, reduce absenteeism work. There have been a number of studies done do, uh, where people write down things that they're grateful for. So I'll go through the exercise, I'll describe it now, and um, and then I'll ask you to find a partner and, and we'll do this. The exercise will take uh, seven minutes. This is going to sound very odd. Um, so we're talking about the workplace. And we'll have one, one partner in the pair, the person who's going to be the listener, ask a question. So the listener slash question. What do you experience when you're grateful about something? Okay. And then the speaker, just share your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and take 60 seconds to respond. Then I will ask that same person who just asked that question to ask the question again. And again, a minute to respond. And then that person will ask that same question a third time. Observe what happens when you do that, and then we'll switch. We'll have a little moment of silence, and then we'll switch. So this is an exercise 
in practicing deep listening. I'm not saying you should go home and do this with your family unless you want them. It's a way of showing that actually not only can you learn what to say, but also there are ways of learning how to listen. And not only to others, but also to listen to yourself. So I brought this little handy bell here. Can you all hear that? So that will signal 60 seconds, and I just would like your exquisite cooperation to just, even if you're in the middle of a sentence, to, um, to stop what you're, what you're saying and then allow the other person to ask the question. Okay. Um, so without a huge amount of fuss, could you try to find a partner with, with whom you can do the exercise?
Right, so we can actually revoke states of mind. So there's a fabulous book called uh, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Pellman, Helen Barrett. Um, and she describes actually how we construct emotions out of, out of raw sensory experience. Emotions aren't things that happen to us. We actually actively construct them. As the listener, I was struck by knowing the embrace that I couldn't interrupt. I was struck by how actually it I was about the answer and letting my partner expand on that. I was taken aback that I was actually genuinely interested mm-hmm. and I didn't have to spend any bandwidth crafting my own response other than the, the nod to encourage him. But it, it was, I don't do that. Whenever you have things that you have a brilliant insight, it sounds very slowly to find. And it's still brilliant after the time, and you go ahead and say it. It's a way of, again, creating those spaces. It's not that you should have conversations like this, but it actually, it, it, you realize that how much you're missing by not well, my listener was listening to me with such a smile and sort of an openness that I felt, um, especially as I approached number two and number three, I could just keep talking, even if I didn't really know what I was going to say, or even when it didn't seem to make sense. It just there was this open space where I could just try. Right, so you kind of trust the emergence of what's going to happen. Now, in fact, actually, I know. I'll tell you a little secret. I didn't completely plan my talk. I didn't know exactly what I would focus on or what I would more or less skip over. So allowing that to happen, I can give you a certain amount of creativity. And creativity is one thing that we know sustains humans.
connected to me. Um, there are ways that I can try to reestablish that sense of shared presence. Um, saying things like to myself, uh, this person has a body and a mind, just like me. Or this person has feelings, emotions, and thoughts, just like me. This person has, at some point in his or her life, been sad, disappointed, angry, and hurt, just like me. At some point in, in their life, this person has experienced suffering, just like me. This person wishes to be free from pain and suffering, just like me. This person wishes to be happy. So not all of those were always useful for every patient or every person. But it's another way of trying to create spaces where they not, might not, not naturally occur. So again, thinking about that as, as an exercise you can carry with you. You see, just try it out. Try it out tomorrow in the clinic or in the classroom or wherever you have to go. You know, pick out that person who you don't feel terribly close to, or you feel that you sometimes disagree with. So today, what I was hoping to do was give you some uh, intellectual, literary, and also experiential and sensory introduction to this world that I call mindful practice. I also want to mention that I, I'm not doing this alone. I've got a close colleague, Nick Brasner, uh, in Rochester, who helped craft that first uh, that study that I presented is you know, a soulmate of this work. And, and, and as I've done this over the years, contributions from many people uh, have enriched it. Uh, and so my feeling, again, is one of gratitude to have been permitted to be the spokesperson of this, uh, this synthesis of this work and, and to be with you here tonight. So we have some time for uh, questions and comments and outrage and protest. <laughs> you know, I, I, I consider it, um, I actually, I'm always more satisfied when you being challenged. <laughs> so don't be shy. So, so how are we going to handle students? We're going to first thank you for
a very distracted environment mm -hmm. where on any given day, especially when I'm in the ICU, I'm bombarded with every single kind of noise and interruption that you can imagine. And so in a, in a practice like that, or in a practice where we are struggling to answer texts from colleagues about patient care, answer phone calls, pages, alarms, etc., what how do you recommend we begin mindfulness? Well, just like I, I wouldn't suggest someone who's taking up the piano to expect to play Rachmaninoff's third piano in Cherry Lane for open. I mean, that's an extraordinarily challenging environment. So I think that, um, and that's part of why I find that doing some kind of practice at home in a quieter environment actually helps build some skills. But I would start small. Like, think about how you begin rounds, or how you transition from one patient to the next. But what do you do when someone dies? Um, uh, and just allowing for those little spaces, kind of living it in, in, in little bits and pieces. So, um, and it's not that you're not going to be distracted, but if you have a sense that um, you want to have a punctuation between patients, then figure out some way of, of honoring that. Um, and. Uh, I'll begin rounds sometimes by asking everyone on my team, you know, what, what intention they have for today. What, what's something that they would, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, will have wanted to have accomplished or moved towards. And, and even just something simple like that makes people feel heard and attended to and then allows you to attend to them uh, in a somewhat different way. So this is, I, I see this as, as a, an accumulation of very small actions. Um, rather than, uh, I mean, everyone's going to be disturbed working in an emergency room or an ICU, um, but just finding those little opportunities, uh, sometimes during transitions. But that would just be a starting point. Can you say a little more about what you do at the doorknob before you go into the <laughs> Yeah, um, touch a doorknob. Take a deep breath. I try to envision what has just happened previously in as rich a way as I can. But it's not verbal richness. It's sensory richness. It's, it's the visual image of that other person, the smell, the, the tone of their voice more than the words that are uttered. Um, and then, almost as if I'm kind of cherishing that image, I, just, I take that image and I just kind of put it right here. So it, it's gentle, it's kind, it's not, it's not discarding anything. Uh, it's available. Um, and then, um, you know, usually I will check someone's chart to see what's happened beforehand. So I kind of imagine um, some things that I might potentially encounter with that, that other person, but also leave this space for surprise. Uh, I've been in the same practice for 34 years and have some of the same patients for 34 years with some of the same complaints for 34 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so finding a freshness is really essential because otherwise I would like, you know, I'd go crazy. So, so this conscious, conscious effort to, um, um, to find that freshness. I, I've forgotten your name, but you said you were in practice for 56 years, is that right? Yes, yeah, so you got me beat. Um, and, and, and you know what? What kept you doing that? You know, is the very thing you're talking about. The, the, uh, the remarkable relationship. 
Okay, so the very thing that I was talking about, the remarkable relationship, but, but also the willingness to be surprised. Dr. Epstein, um, was there ever a time in which you really strove to practice mindfully, was unsuccessful, and then got back to it? I would say every day. <laughs> um, I think one of the dangers in this in this pursuit, and I think in general in the whole, as well as in the kind of physician resilience and wellness efforts, is um, is setting a standard of a particular way to be, um, rather than seeing this all as a process and a vector. So when I'm teaching people to do meditation, I say focus on your breath, and then you find you'll find yourself distracted, and then just gently bring your attention back to your breath. It's a really simple instructions, right? But the distractions happen all the time. And and you can beat yourself up by saying, well, I was distracted 90% of the time. But then you say, well, well, of those distractions, how many of them actually did you remember to bring yourself back to your breath? And of course, it's all of them. Um, and it's that, it's, that, it's that effort to bring yourself back to your attention. It's that process that I would define as mindfulness, not any particular state. I mean, I don't live in a state of I don't know any clinician who's lives in a state of constant bliss. <laughs> this is hard work, you know. And so, um, and it's not about being happy. It's not about being sad. It's about being aware and being able to make these choices so that one, at the end of the day, you feel that you're you flourished. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, how you distinguish yourself and also for your colleagues, this idea of received time versus elapsed time? Um, well, one way that I've taken to um, creating more perceived time is that I don't turn the computer on when I go into the exam room, you know, the outpatient setting, for at least two minutes. And, and so, you know, at the beginning I timed myself. Two minutes doesn't sound like a long period of time, but most patients will basically tell you what's what's concerning them within that period of time. We can all think of the exceptions that people have gone on for hours, but, but the vast majority uh, is within two minutes. And, and I sit on a stool, and I sit facing the patient. I'm not, I don't have anything in my hands. Um, and that two minutes belongs to the patient. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, I think it makes a difference for them, but it certainly makes a difference for me. I feel like I've actually, you know, I've been surprised, I've heard something interesting, I got a new idea, you know, maybe this isn't heart failure after all, or, you know, I mean, just it could be something as mundane as that. But just that, that gift of presence is not only a gift to the patient, but also to myself. So it's that not that our interests are opposed, you know, or, you know, I live in the same world you do. So, you know, this is not, you know, we, we do have sometimes opposing pressures, but at least for those two minutes, um, I try to set it aside. Thank you.
we work with psychiatrists to give them more meaning and allow, again, uh, you know, that doesn't have to be the social Yeah, we do these um, multi-day workshops for physicians, and we've had people from basically every specialty. Uh, so, and I don't really distinguish. I mean, it, um, when we talk about errors, the surgeons talk about you know operating on the wrong person, or doing you know making a surgical error. The psychiatrists talk about the patient of theirs who committed suicide that didn't see it coming. So, um, the emotion is kind of the same. You know, it's, it's really similar, even though superficially the, the work is a bit different. I think psychiatry is particularly in parallel to it, personally. I, I, um, I was actually had a difficult choice between doing psychiatry and primary care. And actually, given what I'm doing now, I'm probably doing more psychiatry than the other psychiatrists. So I'm rather content with my choice, but it's, um, it's not the field that now include that, that has a um, has ownership of the quality of listening that it wants to see. Palliative care also, for me, has that attraction because it, uh, it, um, you're always dealing with people in, in extremists and families that are at each other's throats. And, um, and you can even think that someone wouldn't get any sense of pleasure from it, but actually I do. I get a sense of fulfillment in finding those spaces. In which to work in the we have time for one or two You know, 
everyone's a practice from virtuoso, but if you like listen to an audio recording of your, uh, what you're playing, it's often quite sobering. So you have to develop this capacity to step outside of yourself, what psychologists call decentering, um, and see yourself as others see you. In fact, that's a, a particularly important skill that's associated with resilience. So um, the ability to see yourself. In music, it's the ability to hear what you're playing as if you were in the audience. It's really different than when you're sitting behind the keyboard. It's a very, very different experience. And so um, it's that set of skills that um, I felt were missing uh, in a lot of uh, communication training. And, and I think threatened the sustainability of it. You know, we teach first-year students how to you know, engage in communication behaviors, and then it quickly attenuates as soon as they're on the boards because there's not a, an inner sense of purpose that accompanies the acquisition of those skills. Mm -hmm. Dr. Epstein, several decades ago, George Engel at your institution created the biopsychosocial model of medical practice. Do you see mindful practice in some way as a derivative of that original biopsychosocial model? Uh, well, I went to Rochester to work with George and, and did during his later years. And, um, and he actually kind of went beyond the biopsychosocial in his last couple of articles that he wrote. Um, because initially I was disturbed, I became increasingly disturbed that it was seen as a synthesis of three different elements rather than a descriptor that spoke to a synthesis, uh, that, that spoke to something that was more uh, that, that was beneath that. I think he would um, uh, probably resonate with a lot of the ideas, uh, but maybe not the practices. So uh, George was a, an extremely skilled interviewer but not particularly skilled at describing his state of mind while he's mm -hmm. um, And I'm sure it was there, but, um, so I know George Engel as a person, and I also know bio, the biopsychosocial model as a theory. So yes, I think it was a strong influence. To say derivative, mm -hmm. there were enough other influences that came in that I would say it's, it's not, not it's, it's a nephew or niece, or <laughs> but not, 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 a, not a child. <coughs> So I want to leave time for you to tell me speak with Ron, if you have books you want to sign. Um, but you have brought us forward um, something I wasn't expecting to surprise, uh, which was a sense of purpose. That much of what Ron said tonight was about purposefulness, of intention. It's the surfer with the board who's not going to get washed out, but is going to have pleasure from the waves of whatever is to come. And with our very first question of the attending from the intensive care unit, um, she liked it. She liked it. Oh, well, <laughs> tell her that we remember her. She was paid. Because her own sense of being beset by every little sound, and, and, and Ron's, Ron's advice was, was to to let herself be there and to have a sense of control or at least choice about how that 
on. So these are even deeper than the kinds of things we began talking about. Um, it's way deeper than the words. Uh, in ways, it's way deeper than the words. So let us thank you.